Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to up-level their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the bullshit, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to up-level your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance, body, mind, and soul. Hey there, and welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and today we're going to be talking about lessons learned from European lifestyle. So a few weeks back, I returned from our annual trip to Europe, and every single time I come back and before I go and when my friends, family, and clients travel, I find myself having a familiar conversation with everybody. And we all remark about how amazed we are that in spite of indulging in more decadent foods like pastries, sweets, bread, pasta, etc., often drinking more alcohol, that we all tend to lose weight and we feel so much better both while we're there and after we come home, at least for a while. Now, of course, this can partly be due to the fact that, you know, if you're working and or if you're on vacation, rather, excuse me, and not working while you're in Europe, of course you're going to feel more relaxed and better because you're on vacation, right? But I've had the same conversation with people who are actually over there for work, and there are several factors at play that I want to share with you today. Obviously, it's a privilege to be able to travel, and I'm really grateful that I'm able to go to Europe regularly. I realize that many of you are not able to travel, and there are a multitude of reasons why people can't. I mean, finances can play a huge role. You may have kids in school, work obligations, maybe caregiving for family members or elderly parents. There are a million reasons why travel may not be you know, possible or practical for you right now, but you can still apply what I'm going to share with you today to improve your quality of life. So Let's kick off today's convo by talking about food because we all love food. I love food. I'm pretty sure you love food. And food as, you know, a, a nutrition professional, I really believe it is the foundation of our health and I think there are few people who would actually argue with that. If the fuel that we're putting in our bodies is of good quality and it gives us what we need and we're not putting stuff in our bodies that is problematic for us, we're just going to be a lot healthier. We're going to feel better. Everything is going to be better, right? So let's start off with food. And I think the quality of ingredients in food is probably the biggest factor when it comes to the difference between American and European food. In general, fewer chemicals are used on European crops, and many countries do not allow any GMO or genetically modified crops, which are heavily laden with Roundup or glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup and other chemicals that we use profusely here in the United States. But let's start specifically by talking about bread and pasta, since I think those are two of the things that people tend to indulge in most. Many of you who are gluten intolerant, like I am, but find that you can eat foods containing wheat when you're in Europe, you might wonder why this is, and there are a few explanations of this. I'm a prime example of this. I don't tolerate gluten at all here in the States. I avoid it like the plague. I'm really strict about it because it's just not worth the trade-off for how crappy I feel when I eat anything containing gluten. However, I go to Europe, I can enjoy a croissant at breakfast, or I can eat a little pasta or 
a couple of pieces of bread with my meals and have no issues whatsoever. I'm pretty conditioned out of eating those things, so I still don't indulge heavily in them. But if I do want to enjoy them, it's a non-issue. So why is that? Well, first, different varieties of wheat are grown in the EU, and the European varieties are naturally lower in gluten content. They usually use what's called soft wheat for their breads and semolina wheat for pasta, whereas here in the United States, we usually use hard red wheat, which has higher gluten content. We've actually kind of selectively bred our wheat here to be higher in gluten content because it makes bread faster. It gives bread that elasticity that comes from that gluten protein. So if you've ever made bread at home and you knead it while kneading the bread, you'll notice that it gets more and more elastic. Well, that's what we call gluten development. That's that gluten protein creating that elasticity. And when they're making bread on a commercial level, they want that to happen faster, right? Because you can produce more faster. So over the years, we've actually hybridized wheat crops so that they contain higher gluten content. That's different from genetic modification where we're introducing genes from different organisms, right, into a crop but we'll get into the problems with that a little bit later. So when it comes to bread, Europeans are also more likely to use traditional slow fermentation methods for breads instead of fast rising yeasts, which we often use here. And gluten proteins are much more effectively broken down during slow fermentation, which makes them easier for us to digest. So that's another big, big factor here. European soil is also richer in sulfur. I just learned this recently. I think this is fascinating. Wheat crops that are grown in higher sulfur soil have been found to be lower in gliadin, which is the allergenic or inflammatory component of gluten. So when you're growing crops in higher sulfur soil, they're naturally lower in this gliadin which is pretty cool. Second, many countries in the EU have limited or banned the use of glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup weed killer. Here in the US, glyphosate is commonly used for a process called desiccation, which accelerates the drying of the wheat crops. It's easier and more profitable to store and transport the dried wheat. And by saturating a wheat crop with glyphosate, it dries it out much faster than it would naturally. This is really problematic because Roundup or glyphosate has been declared a probable human carcinogen, which means cancer causer, by the World Health Organization. And there are countless lawsuits against its parent company, which is Monsanto or now Bayer. And in 2020, Bayer agreed to pay close to $11 billion to settle Roundup cancer claims. As of October of this year, 2023, there were more than 4,000 Roundup cancer lawsuits pending in the California Roundup federal multi-district litigation. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. So it's a really big problem. And there have been many, many people coming forward with claims from these cancer diagnoses. Also, in addition to possibly causing cancer, glyphosate disrupts our microbiome or our gut flora. And we've talked in previous episodes about the importance of our gut microbiome, but I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into this specific problem with glyphosate here. So the people who are marketing and who are proponents of glyphosate claim that it's non-toxic to humans because we don't possess the biological pathway that it disrupts. However, bacteria do possess this pathway. It's called the shikimate pathway. And since we have trillions of bacteria in our bodies, in fact, we have 10 times as many bacteria as we have human cells, one could argue that whatever affects the bacteria we are hosting is going to affect us. And our gut flora or our bacteria play crucial roles in our health because they help us break down our food. They produce neurotransmitters and certain nutrients like B vitamins 
and they regulate our immune system and even play a big role in our metabolism. So the bottom line here is that anything that's harmful to your microbiome is also harmful to you. And the solution here is really organic food is not perfect, but try to buy organic food whenever possible. And you can use the Environmental Working Group's Shopper's Guide to Pesticides in Produce to help you prioritize what to buy organic to save money. I'm going to link that in the show notes so that you can download that from EWG, but that's a really helpful document. Also, certified organic foods cannot be genetically modified. So by choosing organic foods, you're going to avoid genetically modified foods or GMOs as well. Organic isn't necessarily perfect, but it's better and you're going to be limiting your exposure to all of those chemicals. And it's not just Roundup. I mean, there are thousands of herbicides, pesticides, fungicides that are sprayed on crops that are conventionally grown and all of that can be potentially harmful to us. So you want to just limit that as much as you can. Another differentiating factor between the food here and the food in Europe is that Europeans are much more likely to use local seasonal ingredients. Of course, this isn't true everywhere, but in many places it is. And if you're eating food that is in season and has been grown locally, it's usually harvested closer to peak ripeness, and it doesn't have to travel nearly as far to get to your plate. So why is this better? Well, seasonal locally grown ingredients are going to taste better, right? Because they're closer to ripe. They're also more nutrient dense versus food that's harvested much sooner and has to travel, you know, hundreds or even thousands of miles before you eat it. One of the things that I love about Europe is going to the farmer's market because you can see, oh my gosh, this is what they grow in this region. And this is what's seasonal at this time of year versus just a big grocery store, which they also have there where you're going to see foods imported from all over the world so that you can get things all year round, whether they're in season locally or not. That's fine. And sometimes we just, I don't know, I don't always eat seasonal food. That would be ideal. We don't live in an ideal world. So, you know, sometimes we're going to use things that are not seasonally available or that have come from someplace further away, but it's always good to eat local and seasonal when possible. Again, better for us, better for the planet. And they taste better and are more nutritious. And you're supporting local farmers. So that's always a great thing. We want to support small farms. Okay, next thing that I want to move on to, and this is a really, really big one. In Europe, in most of Europe, mealtime is sacred. And gosh, could that be any more of a contrast to the US where we're like rushing through food, eating in front of the computer and eating, standing up, snacking on the run in the car. I mean, we all do it. I've done it. I'm totally guilty of that. But in Europe, it's very different. Mealtime is sacred. And often when you're eating out, it takes a while. (laughs) So for example, on our recent trip, we were in France and Portugal, and I don't think we spent any less than 90 minutes to two hours when we ate out at restaurants. It's just what's expected. They take their time. They don't rush you through the meal. Everybody eats much more slowly. They savor it. It's an event, right? And obviously this isn't totally practical, but I think it's a good lesson for us to just sort of slow down and see mealtime as a time to nourish ourselves and actually enjoy and connect with our food, which we tend to not do here. I mean, we didn't see anybody rushing around, rushing through their lunch to get back to work. Many businesses will actually close for two to three hours at lunchtime. And, you know, obviously this is not the way we do things here in the U.S., unfortunately, but I really think it's an important lesson that when we slow down and truly experience our food, it's more enjoyable and satisfying. 
And if we can enjoy meals with friends or family, it's even better. When our meals are more enjoyable and satisfying, we're a lot less likely to mindlessly overeat or to walk away from a meal feeling unsatisfied. I mean, how many times have you eaten lunch at your desk or rushed through a meal just to finish it and realize like, hey, I didn't even really taste or experience this. I've done this a million times. And inevitably, those are the times when I want to keep eating or I want something sugary afterwards because I don't feel satiated. So I encourage you to make mealtime sacred or at least more sacred. Move towards that. You may not be able to devote an hour or more to lunch during your work week, but you can step away from your desk, try to eat in a relaxing environment, eat more slowly and mindfully. And just trust me on this one. You're going to enjoy your food much more and you'll be more relaxed and focused when you go back to work. So it really is worth the effort. Lunch breaks are also legally required. So regardless of your company culture, you are entitled to that time. How much time that is depends on the number of hours you're working each day. But I believe 30 minutes is like the bare minimum for anyone working an eight hour day. So Take advantage of that because they can't legally punish you for taking a work break. And if you're working from home, absolutely take advantage of that. (laughs) Step away from your computer, sit at your table, don't have distractions, just really be present, eat slowly, chew well, enjoy your food. Hello, nutrition editors. If you've been listening and you're ready to put this work into practice in your own life, Head over to joliverwellness.com and book a free 30-minute chat to learn more about coaching with me or to check out my self-study programs. I also invite you to join my email list where you'll hear from me a few times each month with recipes and strategies for reducing stress, improving your metabolic health, and working out smarter, not harder. Subscribers will also receive exclusive offers in my programs that I don't share anywhere else, and you'll get early access to registration for my Body Liberation Together group program. I look forward to connecting with you, and let's get back to the show. Okay, so next point, walking, walking after meals. This is a really big one, and it's actually a pretty easy one to put into practice if you're willing to try it. So we don't walk a ton in the United States. A lot of us live places that require cars, so we really have to kind of make an effort, an extra effort to do this. When we're on vacation, we often end up walking to and from restaurants and places of interest which we're like, you know, less likely to do when we're home here in the US, especially if we do some live somewhere less walkable and we need to take our car everywhere. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me getting 10,000 plus steps in is really easy when traveling because I'm exploring new places on foot, which many of us do, or you might be going like to museums, different things like that. And Europeans themselves spend a lot less time sitting in cars and at desks than Americans do. Their infrastructure is such that many of them walk to work or they're taking public transport and have to walk to that transport to get there. So they just sit a lot less than we do. And walking after we eat or after meals is especially helpful because it improves our digestion it'll lower your blood glucose, and it increases insulin sensitivity, which we've talked about in other episodes, which is huge when we're talking about you know fat loss, stress reduction, brain health, all of these things. It also reduces stress hormone production, walking does. So all of these things can aid in a healthier gut, healthier metabolism, and in helping you feel just more relaxed and less stressed. Now, I realize that walking after every meal in our daily lives just may not be practical, but just moving around and using your muscles after you eat can be super beneficial. If you can take a walk, even a short one after eating, like just a few minutes, go for it. But if you can't, 
Try walking a couple flights of stairs or doing bodyweight squats or lunges next to your desk. You only need to do it for a few minutes to reap the benefits, but by using your muscles after you eat, it's going to do the same thing by lowering your blood glucose because the insulin is going to shuttle that glucose into your muscles because your muscles are moving and it's going to help you feel more alert. It'll improve your digestion afterwards. So you're less likely to feel like that food sitting in your stomach, like a rock. It can help you be more regular and less constipated. If that's something that you struggle with. Yeah. Just try to move around or walk after you eat. Okay. Moving on. So community and connection is the next thing I want to touch on. In Europe and in many countries around the world, families and friends come together over mealtime and people often have a stronger sense of community. We Americans are much more individualistic and our busy lives leave little room for connecting with others unless we really prioritize it. I feel like this is even worse since the pandemic because so many of us are used to being holed up in our homes. We're working from home. We're not going out as often. You know, we have gotten a little funny about going and doing social things or worried about getting sick. I know so many people who are still really concerned about COVID and just don't want to expose themselves by going to big parties or large gatherings, things like that. And you don't necessarily have to do that, but I think connecting with community is really crucial. And we all need to find a way to do that that works for us. Finding your people is so important, especially in this time when loneliness is at an all-time high. And like I say, there's so many ways to connect with the community. So I encourage you to seek out a community around whatever it is that makes your heart sing. That might be sports. It could be something like, gosh, even gaming. What else? I know people that do like knitting and crochet together. You could do music classes, dance classes, whatever it is. When I was in nutrition school, they talked a lot about what's called primary food. And primary food refers to the aspects of life that feed your soul, including relationships, joy, spirituality, creativity, career and education, finances, your home environment, home cooking, health, and of course, physical activity. And when one or more of these is lacking in your life, you're much more likely to turn to food or other substances in an attempt to fill the void. Your social life and community are big sources of primary food. So whatever it is that you enjoy, I guarantee there are others out there who love the same things. So explore that. Try to connect with other people and get some things on your calendar that you look forward to that will allow you to really connect and create community in your life. Okay, let's talk about stress. <laughs> Because one of the biggest differences between Americans and Europeans is the stressful pace of life that we live here. We usually have a fraction of the vacation time that most Europeans enjoy. And most corporations or large companies in the U.S. have cultures where working long hours and weekends is really common and sometimes even expected. I have so many clients who work for companies like this where you know, the boss is a workaholic or their manager is a workaholic and everyone beneath them is expected to be the same. And those teams always end up having a lot of turnover. They're burnt out. They're bitter and angry and resentful. They don't feel well. They're super stressed. Their sleep suffers. Their health suffers. Everything. It's just a really, really bad vicious cycle. And 
we have what's called golden handcuffs. I'm sure you've heard that term before where people feel like, well, I'm making a lot of money, so I have to work all these long hours. And salaries here are often higher than in Europe. However, when you break it down into an hourly wage, people are not really making enough to justify sacrificing their health and well-being. I mean, when you're working crazy long hours on weekends, you break down that big salary into your hourly wage, it's not always that much, right? So it's just a completely different philosophy of work-life balance. Work-life balance is highly valued in most of Europe. And because people don't have to worry about paying outrageous amounts of health for healthcare and things like that, they aren't so terribly stressed all the time. And unfortunately, that's just not reality here. It's not an easy thing to change, but I want to encourage to those of you listening, especially you women, to really draw strong boundaries around your work hours and weekends. Plan your vacation time. Take days off whenever possible. And if you're in a job that you hate that's sucking the life and soul out of you, start looking for something that won't. Because I guarantee there is no job that is going to pay you enough to make up for feeling exhausted and shitty all the time. And no company is going to come to you on your deathbed and thank you for all that you did for them. It's just not how it works. It's not worthwhile. So prioritize that work-life balance in any way you possibly can because we don't necessarily have the luxury of not paying for healthcare and things like that, like Europeans do. So we have to make more of an effort to reduce our stress. And that said, I want to give you a few ways that you can reduce the stress in your life or at least become like less stress reactive. So what do I mean by that? I mean that while your stressors may not change, how you react to them does. Like they may not affect you as much if you're less stress reactive. So here are just six quick ways that I think you can do that. Number one, walk more. We talked on this or touched on this earlier, but walking reduces stress hormone production and it can be a great way to get some fresh air or a break from your desk during your workday. Yoga is also great for reducing stress. Number two, eat nutrient-dense whole foods. We've talked about this a million times on this show, but also minimize or avoid your alcohol, sugar, and caffeine intake. All of these can increase inflammation and increase stress hormone production while compromising your sleep and immune function. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. I've mentioned before that you can kind of think of alcohol and caffeine as liquid stress. You know, caffeine is stimulating stress hormones. That's how it wakes you up, by stimulating cortisol and adrenaline. Alcohol is deceptive. It's a depressant. So it's going to initially make you feel more calm or relaxed, but it increases cortisol production, which is why, you know, if you drink a lot, you often have disrupted sleep or you might wake in the middle of the night and not get as good quality of rest. So, and then sugar is just super inflammatory and it can mess with your blood sugar, which can also mess with your sleep, immune function, et cetera. Number three, this is a big one in this time of the world. Don't watch or listen to the news all the time. (laughs) I know this is a tough one for some people. And yes, it's important to have a clue about what's going on in the world. However, a steady intake of news is only gonna make you more fearful more hopeless, more depressed. So really try to keep this to a minimum, okay? Number four, incorporate a meditation and or prayer time into your day. doesn't have to be long. Just a few minutes here and there can make a really big difference, but studies have shown that meditation and prayer take your brain into a state of relaxation that's deeper than anything else that we do as humans. So 
I don't care if it's 30 seconds, 30 minutes, whatever you can fit in, just try to incorporate that into your life every day. It also just helps me so much to turn over my cares and worries and fears to my higher power and to actually like visualize myself handing those things over. That is super helpful for me. So that is part of my prayer meditation visualization practice that I find really helpful. So whatever works for you, definitely incorporate that. can be a big stress reducer. Number five, prioritize sleep. (laughs) This is probably the biggest one. This should probably be number one because it affects everything downstream. If you're not rested, everything else is going to be worse. It's going to be harder. So do not compromise your sleep. I know it's super tempting to stay up late or get up early to get extra work done, but the reality is that you'll be much more focused and productive if you've had a good night's sleep. You'll also have less cravings for sugar and junky foods. Um, You're going to have more energy. You'll be more likely to have energy to work out more, get that walk in, whatever it might be, connect with, with community, right? So sleep is a huge needle mover. So start by prioritizing that. The last, number six, the last one I want to mention to you guys is something that can also reduce stress is not trying to achieve an unrealistic body size or shape or try to stay young forever. This is something that European women are brilliant at. They know how to emphasize their assets and embrace their flaws instead of trying to become something that they are not. I think we're making some strides here in our culture when it comes to celebrating different body shapes and sizes and unconventional beauty, but we still have a really long way to go. And on an individual basis, I don't think I know any women who don't need to work on this. So I encourage you to take small steps to just accept and celebrate who you are and what you've got and emphasize those assets versus trying to fit a square peg into a round hole by just constantly trying to be smaller, a different weight, all of these things. I think that our weight can often, if not usually correct itself, or we can find our natural healthy weight when we do embrace who we are, what we've got to work with, and just start really taking care of ourselves and honoring our bodies. So start there versus trying to lose weight and then thinking that you're going to love your body once you do that. That's not how it works. So anyway, those are the top six ways for reducing your stress. I mean, there's more than that, obviously, but those are the ones that came to mind that I think can be really helpful. And of course, Europe is not perfect. It definitely has its share of problems as well. Obesity and diabetes are increasing there because of processed foods. But for the most part, Europeans don't struggle with their weight and their relationship with food and body as much as we Americans do. So here's a quick recap of what we covered today and a few reasons why these things matter that I may not have mentioned earlier. So number one, try to eat as much organic, local, seasonal food as possible, just whenever you can. Do your best here. It's not going to be perfect. Second, make mealtimes sacred. Europeans enjoy more leisurely meals, and they usually eat slower and savor the experience of the food, and that makes us feel more satisfied after meals. So this is an easy one to try and incorporate. Just try slowing down and really being present and experiencing your meals with all of your senses and see how you feel. I bet you're going to feel more satiated. Next is walking a lot. 
especially after eating. The reason that this is so helpful is not only does it decrease your blood glucose or your blood sugar after eating, but it gives the food somewhere to go. So what do I mean by that? Basically, instead of your body storing food, it's going to use those calories that you ingest for creating energy or rebuilding muscle tissue, etc. So it's putting it to use versus you just eating and then sitting around and it being more likely to be stored as fat. So that's why another reason why it's so helpful to walk more after mealtime. And it's also going to boost your digestion, as I mentioned previously. Next is community and connection. And this is a really big one. Try to spend meals with family or friends whenever possible. This is something that's really common in Europe and people have a stronger sense of community there. So seek out your people, create community for yourself or get plugged into a community. And it doesn't have to necessarily be around food or around meals, but just being part of a community and having that support system is really important. It's important because remember, this is one of those pieces of what we call primary food that contributes to your overall fulfillment in life. And when we aren't fulfilled in those primary food areas, we're going to try and fill that void often with what's easiest. Those are substances, be it food, sugar, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is that people are using or that works for you, right, in the moment. And then finally, lower your stress levels in every way possible. People always wonder why Europeans can seemingly get away with drinking and smoking and eating pastries, and they're still not as unhealthy as Americans, or they don't seem to gain weight by doing those things. And a big part of this is that they just have a less stressful lifestyle. You know, the more stressed you are, the more efficiently your body will store fat. And it's important to understand that your cells don't differentiate between potential famine or running from a predator and the low-grade chronic stress from work or family or whatever modern-day stressors you're dealing with. So on a physiological level, your body responds in the same way. And to your cells, stress equals a threat to your survival. So your body is going to do whatever it can to keep you alive. And one piece of that is storing fuel more efficiently in the form of fat. It's also going to downregulate other functions like your digestion and sex hormone production. So if your body is dealing with less overall stress, A, you're going to be more likely to burn fat, okay, less likely to store it. But also you're going to be able to tolerate more things or more insults, so to speak, to your body. So if your body isn't super stressed out and your mind's not super stressed out, you are going to be more likely to tolerate things better. So your body may be able to handle or detoxify more quickly from alcohol, sugar, tobacco, etc., because your body's just better able and equipped to deal with those things because it's not already overloaded. That's the major difference, I think, with Europeans in that they can get away with things that we can't get away with here or at least seemingly suffer fewer health consequences. And the main message I want to convey to you is that while we can't change everything about American culture, we can definitely take steps to prioritize our well-being and our enjoyment of life. As with any kind of lifestyle change, it's most effective to start with small shifts and then build on them as they become part of your routine. So start with what feels easiest to you and then work your way up. Europeans place a huge value on enjoying life and they work to live, whereas Americans tend to live to work, so to speak. But all these aspects of the European lifestyle that I covered today can be helpful for you when it comes to creating a healthier body, mind, and relationship with food. So yeah, give these a try. I hope you'll try incorporating at least one or more of these principles into your daily life and see what changes. And I'm going to bet that you find food more satiating, you have better digestion, 
and you feel more connected to others. So that's the show for today. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. So come join me over on Instagram and let me know. Take good care of you and I'll see you again next week. Hey there, thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave me a quick review. Also check out the show notes for links to connect, follow and share this podcast and for information featured in each episode. See you next time. I am not a doctor and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast or any other. And do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking a new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinion of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show. Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Genie Oliver Wellness LLC or our producers.